want to thank you all for being here. Uh, my, uh, welcome to your North County Court of Appeals. My name is Chris Dillon. I'll be presiding today. To my right is Judge Allegra Collins, and to my left is Judge Allison Riggs. We have Richard Remillard, who's serving as our marshal, and Eddie Sanders serving as our clerk. Thank you all for being here. We have one case on the calendar. It's the Roman Catholic Diocese case, and so if, if the appellant is ready, we'll hear from you. And just let me know if you want to uh, reserve any time for, for rebuttal. Yes, Your Honor, I'd like to reserve 10 minutes. 10 minutes, okay. And I'll, and I'll keep your, the, the clock will be there, but I'll keep your time too, so um, I'll give you some warnings, so you may proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court, my name is Elliot Kroll. I'm a partner at Aaron Fox Show. I also think it's important for me to share with you that I'm hearing impaired. I wear hearing aids in both ears. So uh, if I mishear you in question, it's not being rude. Roman Catholic Diocese is a policyholder of Arrowwood Indemnity. Arrowwood Indemnity is not a defendant here. This is a case of deceptive and unfair practices that are actionable under both New York and North Carolina law. The, de the defendants have done everything they can to change the narrative. But under 12b-6, the court needs to accept our pleadings as they are set forth. And as they are set forth, there can't be any more compelling case than this case for what's happened to the policyholders because of the actions of these defendants. In 2000, as we've alleged, this is all on the record, in 2007, this regulated entity, Arrowwood, was spun off to Arrowpoint and these defendants. Three of them, Messrs. Ty, Cahill, and Beatty, owned so much of the company that they also are controlled persons under North Carolina insurance law. In fact, Delaware insurance law, all the insurance laws in the United States. And they were specifically subject to the order of Commissioner Matthew Den that said every dime goes to policyholders. Why? Why were they concerned? Because as we set forth in the pleadings, there were extensive hearings. And here, a company with $3 billion in assets, obligations to policyholders in every state in the country except two, is being given over to individuals running an insurance company cut off from the former mothership, the Global Royal Sun Alliance, and they're entrusted with making sure that the policyholders' obligations get met. What do we allege in the complaint? We allege unfair and deceptive practices. We allege that with specificity, the defendants have the audacity to say we made vague references and we failed to sufficiently provide specific or particularized allegations to meet the pleading test. I can't imagine a more specific set of allegations. We set forth dates, specific amounts. We set forth, the, we provide guidance as to the statutory rules with, that control the accounting for insurance companies, which is very different from uh, all other entities. And how these defendants including Arrowpoint, made sure that the Den order was trashed, kicked to the side and violated, and they took hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that were supposed to go to policyholders, not just my client, but all the policyholders, and they feathered their nests and the nests of their former employees, retirees. Hundreds of millions of dollars went to pensioners. An issue has been raised in this case about reliance. You can't rely on something that is being hidden. The North Carolina law, 75.1.1, talks about unfair and deceptive acts and practices. That's what we allege. You can't rely on something that's unfair. You can't rely upon something that's deceptive. And there's a question about what was disclosed. If you look at our pleading, you will see that there were patterns that developed over time. It's kind of like from biology in high school. 
where you take a frog and you put it in a pot of boiling water, it jumps right out. But you put it in a pot of cold water and you slowly turn up the temperature, over time, the frog's not going to move, the frog's going to boil to death. That's what happened here. It was over time, it was insidious. And we set that forth in our papers very clearly. Now, under New York law, we also have a provision under Section 349 of the General Business Law for deceptive acts and practices. Now, the defendants would have you believe that we have to prove coverage. The defendants would have you believe that we're challenging these actions as part of a private contract dispute over insurance policy coverage. That's just not true. It's not what we plead, and it's not the case. What we're dealing with here is a situation where there is no debate about whether our client is a policyholder. That's a given. And they admit it. They're not trying to rescind policies. They say we're a policyholder. And in fact, they say they're defending us. Let me, let me ask you a question. So I'm just trying to think about this. Let's say I have, a, I have an insurance policy on my house. And I don't have a claim yet, but if I see the insurance company is just blowing through all the money and they're not keeping up the reserves, is that, is that the type of claim you're saying that you have? No. No, that's not the claim you're having. No. And, if, and So how is yours different than my example? It differs in, in several respects. First of all, the DEN order. That's unique. This is a unique situation because this company went into a runoff. It was no longer selling policies. It no longer had income. And, and if the, the, Matthew Den, who a lot of us who do insurance regulatory work know, said specifically, every dime intended for policyholders actually reach the policyholders. That, they, they say there should be comedy. Yeah, we agree there should be comedy. The Den order is. But, but in my example, it would seem like that there are rules that the Department of Insurance has saying that insurance companies have to keep a certain amount of reserves. It's not a dent order, but it is a law or a rule. And if I, as a policyholder, believe that they're not maintaining the amount of reserves that they're required to maintain, is, how's, is my remedy to sue them or to go to the Department of Insurance and try to get some kind of uh, remedy there? Why is, how is your case different than my hypothetical? Because I would think that any insurance company has a government rule, there's a rule by the government or whatever that you have to maintain a certain amount of reserves and if they're not doing it, or if, if I don't think they're doing it, you know, how's, how is yours different? I mean, I know you have a dent order, but that to me is another government order, I guess. So why is this a little bit different? I'm just trying to understand what the, the correct, I mean, I, I'm not saying that you're, not, you're without a remedy or something needs to be done, but I mean, I'm trying to understand what that remedy is. And I'm trying to understand how your case is different than my hypothetical, because I don't know if I could go personally sue my insurance company, hey, you're not keeping your reserves up. I'm not sure. I'm just trying to understand that, why this case is different. Right. I think there are several reasons, Your Honor. First of all, any, this is not a case about one specific policy or about a set of reserves for a particular set of policies. This is a question of a systemic, pervasive pattern over years to drain hundreds of millions of dollars out of this company. And at a, at a certain level, the fact that it is in runoff makes a huge difference. And it makes a difference because it's a sum zero game. And if this was simply a question of the company not maintaining adequate reserves, I'm not sure we'd be here. But when you take the complaint as a whole and you look at everything that's happening there in terms of the manipulation of the reserves to deceive regulators, the, um, the Mr. manner Cole. in which the investments were mischaracterized in their annual statement. 
That's not a question of inadequate reserves. When you look Mr. at Mr. Kroll, if, if, if this is a matter of deceiving regulators, why isn't the proper remedy with those regulators? Why don't those regulators go first, if you will, and try and fix what's happened? Well, they should be. They should be doing something, and they're not. So then what? Do we I, try, do we, you know, I mean, if, if, I want to try and stick to the record, Your Honor, be very clear about that. But the, the mere fact that there is, or I shouldn't say is, there could be, in theory, a remedy with the Delaware Department or some other Department of Insurance doesn't mean my client doesn't have a remedy at law or an equity. And, and so the two are not mutually exclusive. And to the extent that, you know, our state has said that the Unfair and Deceptive Practices Act doesn't cover internal business decisions. So it, where's the line between, you know, just having a beef with how much executives are being paid? Like, where do we... Where do we draw that line? I mean, I, I hear you allege it's, it's systemic, it's multi-year, and it wouldn't just be if there were insufficient reserves. But I don't see where the line is as a matter of law, given the fact that our Supreme Court is carving out areas that this, this statute doesn't apply to, this relief doesn't apply to. It's a regulated company, and it's subject to statutory accounting rules. It's not subject to GAAP. We say that very specifically in, in, in our papers. And so when, when, you, when you look at, at um, what, they, what happened here, and what we set forth in very clear, you know, specific details, time, place, et cetera, um, there is a deception that happened it's an unfair result for the, for the policyholders. And unlike a manufacturing company making widgets, which decides to pay a lot of money to its executives or let them have fancy cars, here there's, there's statutory obligations, such as Judge Dillon said, with respect to maintaining adequate reserves. It's a sum zero game, right? So if you have $100 and you have to put up $10 in reserves, and you put up five and give those five, the five dollars to your executives or to pensioners or something else, you now, you don't have the money to put up the ten dollars in reserves. So it's regulated, it's subject to statutory accounting, and the obligation under the statute, the same reference Judge Dillon made, is to adequately reserve for your losses. So at the end of the day, for an insurance company, and we say this in our papers, right at the outset, I think it's one of the first paragraphs, it's all about solvency. If you're not solvent, whether you handle the claim properly, whether you charge the right premium, it doesn't matter. What matters is solvency. And everything that you're saying, Judge Briggs, goes to solvency. And that's where you have a difference between this Arrowpoint, Arrowwood complex and the widget manufacturer. Can the oh. widget manufacturer go out and borrow more money? I want to I ask about injury sure. then when we're go talking ahead. about solvency. So in, in this case, you have not alleged that any claim has not been paid, correct? That's correct, Your Honor. And as of yet, if no claim... If you what, has, Your Honor? If no claim has gone unpaid, in theory, no claim could... It's possible that, that no claim has ever not gone paid and that there's never an injury, correct? My answer to you is no, because what we've alleged and what is turning out to be true and set forth in the pleadings, so I want to be very careful by going outside the record, is this company went from three billion in assets, it's from paragraph 126, to where they are now, from $3 million in gross paid in surplus to, as of year end 21, less than, uh, right, less than 50 million in assets. And so 
this pattern, it's very clear where it's headed. They're, they were, as of a couple years ago, an authorized control level for RBC. So the, it's very clear from what's happening, and we allege it very clearly, that it will all be gone. The company is, as a practical matter, we say it, we allege this specifically, insolvent. And if that's the case, then at some point, someone's going to do something, and policyholders, including about 2,500 worker comp claimants who are out there, are going to get nothing. So is this a case where an uh, injunction is the proper action versus alleging that there's been injury and then troubling damages, those types of things? We're basically not seeking damages as such, Your Honor. We are basically seeking a type of equitable relief. They say it in their papers, and we do as well. We're saying, get this money back, put it in the company for everybody. A rising boat, a rising tide raises all boats. That's exactly what we're saying. So is a UDTP, UDTP claim the same as an injunction? I mean, is that the same action? Well, I believe it does, and I know for sure that 349 under the New York law specifically allows for, for injunctive relief. So, so there's no question in my mind that um, in, in terms of the relief allowed under the New York law, um, it says it in H, 349H, specifically says bring an action in his own name to enjoin such unlawful or, or act or practice. Mr. Kroll, the injunctive relief that I think you want is some money put in a constructive trust or held in a constructive trust, is that right? I can't hear you. I'm sorry, the, the relief, the injunctive relief you want is some kind of money put in an injunctive trust, of, uh, constructive trust of some sort, is that right? Correct. And that requires us under the typical standards for an injunction to find some likelihood of success. What I'm stuck on is what happens to your theory of standing if either the Brooklyn Federal Court finds no coverage, so you're a policyholder, policy but you, the, the insurance company doesn't owe you any money, or if none of the 800 claims end up requiring a, a, a payment, uh, that you don't need to be indemnified for them. They all go to trial and they all um, find in your client's favor, right? So how do I decide that there's a likelihood of success in the merits when I don't know what's going to happen in the Brooklyn Federal Court and I don't know what's going to happen in, in each of these 800 cases under the New York Child Victims Act? I actually think that's, that's an easy lift, and I'll tell you why. Because, as I said earlier, they haven't asked to rescind the policies. The policies exist. And they are defending now. Until they get an order from the court, because they're the plaintiff in that declaratory judgment action. I'm not involved in it at all. But until they get an order getting them off their obligations in those cases, they're obligated on those cases. They're defending. But in the 800 cases, are there damages awarded in each of those? Have there been? Or yeah, have I, there been. Um, I don't think any of those have yet gone to trial. But there's part of the conundrum, and this gets back to the solvency issue, and this gets back to some of the questions that you raised, Judge Collins, which is, what's a policyholder to do? You know, Judge Dillon, you talked about an automobile owner saying, you inadequately reserved my, case, uh, my file. Well, here, we've got 800 cases, and that's just this diocese. There are several others in the state, and a lot of other types of policyholders. In fact, we specifically show the court in, in the record that there's over 100 million, according to Arrow Wood, there's over $100 million in liabilities in the state of New York. What are people to do? Sit there and let these cases continue? Do they try to settle the cases? It creates a huge problem for the public. You know, one time I was in front of Judge, um, um, judge in federal court in New York, and I raised an issue of public policy, and he said to me, Mr. Kroll, I smell herring coming into the courtroom. <laughs> and, you know, and I was pretty embarrassed in that particular case. But here, this is a public policy issue. You have, you have a regulated entity right here in the state of North Carolina. This is where they trade. And accepting our allegations is true, which to our view the court must for these purposes, they have looted the piggy bank. 
Well, that's, that goes back to my question. If I'm a homeowner, if I have a homeowner's policy, that insurance company is regulated in North Carolina, and if I think that they're just blowing through the money and going to Las Vegas with it, do I have a claim, direct claim, or do I have to go to the insurance commission? And are you saying your case is different because it has, you have this DIN order? Is that what makes your case different than my, my, my case? Or would I, have an, would I have a cause of action against my insurance company in my hypothetical? I'm trying to see how your case is, if I don't, I'm trying to see how your case is different. And I think you're saying it's different because there's this DIN order. Am I right about that? Or I think that there are two ways in which our situation is different than the, the hypothetical that you posed, Your Honor. One is the DIN order, for sure. And but the DIN order does give a remedy. The DIN order in your brief says that a claims monitor will be available to receive complaints and to monitor. So that's sort of, it's, it, does, it, does it create a cause of action for policyholders to sue directly if they want to? I know it has that remedy, so I don't see where the DIN order gives that. Or you're just saying that's implied? We're not suing Arrowwood here. Okay. So we're suing their officers and directors, and we're, we're suing the holding company. And issues with such as your honor uh, are positive okay. would be appropriate in the Eastern District case as a policy hold against my insurance company. That's not what we're, that, that's, that's a major difference here. So could I, in my case, sue the owners or the officers of my homeowners insurers saying that y'all are acting badly? I guess. You're saying your case is more analogous to that. You're suing the officers, not necessarily the company. Yes, and in that instance, we're saying that if you look at what actually is alleged here and take that as true, they've, they've been <laughs> in, 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 incredible in blatantly saying, we're, our priority is dealing with the pensioners. They have their own website for the pensioners, and we're going to make sure that, that all those underfunded pensions are filled up, and we're going to take care of ourselves. And, and we're saying that as a holding company and as the same officers and directors in each, you can't do that because it's unfair and you've concealed information from us, and therefore it's deceptive. And there's no reliance. You can't rely on something that was concealed. Okay. I've used up my... And I'll give you 10 minutes because you answered my question. So you still have Thank 10 you, minutes Ron. left. Thank you. We'll hear from the Appleese. May it please the court. I am Preston Odom with James McElroy and Deal. Uh, I am here with my law partner, Ed Henson, and colleague, Ken Failer, uh, who is uh, with Denton's in District of Columbia, and he is going to be presenting uh, the arguments for the 13 individual defendant appellees and the two company defendant appellees. May it please the court, Ken Failer, Denton's USLLP for all the defendants. We've got three of the defendant appellees here with us today. And um, with your indulgence, Your Honors, I'd like to introduce you to three of the people who these very reckless allegations have been made against. Um, Gil Chandler, the general counsel of Arrowwood Insurance. He has been the general counsel for decades and has put all of his efforts and time into running this runoff company as anticipated by the DEN um, order. John Tai, the former CEO of Arrowwood Insurance, also with the company for decades, also implementing this runoff, which is always a difficult thing to do. And lastly, Kathy, Kathy Carlino, the CFO, who has also been sued here, who prepares the financial statements that are being attacked and who has done her job diligently also under the supervision of the Delaware Department of Insurance. Thank you, Your Honors. You got to keep talking. He's not allowed to talk. I'm sorry. Yes. Well, we just have a correction. Uh, Mr. Chandler has only been the general counsel for a few years, but he has been with the company. For so I have a question. If, um, 
if a company has a large reserve and they are spending it recklessly and buying things on the internet and going to Vegas, as Judge Dillon said, if we were to accept that allegation as true, do the policyholders have to sit back and watch that money be spent such that they have no chance of recovering on any claim? What's the remedy? Yes. Uh, absolutely, Your Honor, and I was, I was going to address Judge Dillon's question, and Judge Collins, I'll address yours at the same time. Remedy is to go to the Delaware Insurance Commissioner. He has the jurisdiction. We, we were just hearing about protecting the policyholders, protecting the public interest. That is the job of the Delaware Insurance Commissioner. But what happens if the Delaware Insurance Commissioner doesn't do anything? Then you go to the Delaware Court of Chancery, and you bring an emergency expedited action to mandamus the Delaware Insurance Commissioner, or you bring other action to force him to take action. There are remedies for that. And if you think that um, monies are being moved out inappropriately, there are remedies for that as well, but not under an unfair and deceptive trade practices act in North Carolina or New York. You do have these remedies. But what about the argument that those remedies aren't mutually exclusive, that they have that and they have what they've brought? Well, if these were conceivably within the scope of the statute, um, that might be, uh, that might be the case, but what we have here is no consumer-facing conduct, no conduct that involves transactions between consumers and a business. These policies were not purchased based on any of the supposed misrepresentations. These policies were purchased decades ago, many decades ago, um, long before the transfer of the policies to Arrowwood. No consumer act was predicated on anything that is alleged in this case. And we've cited, we've discussed the law in some detail, uh, the Bumpers case in, in North Carolina, from the North Carolina Supreme Court, uh, the Stutman case in New York, uh, the recent case in New York, um, Sims in New York City versus, I think, Sims Sterling. All of these say you have to have a direct injury as a consumer. We, we're hearing about the policyholders and the public not being protected. That's the job of the Delaware Insurance Commissioner. The Delaware Insurance Commissioner works under the guidance in the rules of the National Association of the Insurance Commissioners, as well as under a complex regulatory framework designed by the state of Delaware, designed by the Delaware legislature. And Judge Collins, you ask, um, well, could, aren't, aren't, you, you raised the point uh, that, that my colleague made that, um, that private remedies are not necessarily mutually exclusive of the remedies um, of, or of the actions that are um, are, are granted to the Delaware Insurance Commission, but here they are. And here they are because, as you heard Mr. Kroll say, they're seeking to show that this insurance company is insolvent right now. This company in runoff is insolvent. And that is exclusively committed. That determination is exclusively committed to the jurisdiction of the Delaware Insurance Commission. Well, can I, can I stop? I, I didn't hear them saying that they are insolvent. I heard them saying that they are spending money in a pattern that will render them insolvent. Is there a difference there? Is that important? Um, I, I don't think there is. But actually, at paragraphs 194 and 203 of their complaint, they do plead that it's insolvent. They say that they believe this company should be in liquidation. They've made those statements um, uh, in the trial court below, and they've made them again here. And the insolvency determination, the liquidation determination, the receivership determination, all of these are committed to the sole discretion of the Delaware Insurance Commissioner. Um, Cohen versus... Uh, uh, An insurance company can be under-reserved but not be insolvent if no claims have been made. Is that right? But you're saying, is that a determination of the Delaware insurance yes. company? Yes. I mean, what, what, what because I don't, cause I, I'm not saying this insurance company is insolvent because they haven't had any claims against them yet, but they could be under-reserved, I guess. Are you still saying that's, that's also within the jurisdiction of the Delaware insurance commissioner or commissioner, whatever they call themselves up there? Yes. Okay. And again, you can go to the insurance commissioner, you can go to the Delaware Department of Insurance, you can raise the issue. But reserves are something that are, um, are reported, they're set every year. Uh, they're reported every year in very voluminous detailed filings. Uh, they're backed up by substantial financial data. And in this case, uh, the, you know, the DEN decision is very interesting. The DEN decision definitely does not change any of these rules. The DEN decision definitely does not say you don't have to show standing. Does, def, definitely does not make the owners of this company fiduciary uh, to the policyholder. What it does do 
is it adds another layer of expert supervision by the Delaware Department of Insurance. It adds this claims monitor position. So unlike every other insurance company are out there, or, or most of them, unless they've got a special order, because this is a company in runoff, and because the concern is to make sure it's still got to operate like an insurance company. It's still got all the same expenses, all the same expenses as a normal insurance company except developing and selling new policies. Still got to manage claims, still has to manage its investments, still has employees to pay, still has to pay the pensions, still has to do all that. But the Den, Commissioner Den, after this very contentious, disputed, lengthy hearing, which allowed, hearing process, which allowed for this transaction, he appointed something called a claims monitor. And the claims monitor actually reports to commissioner, uh, the commissioner of, of insurance um, in Delaware every month. The claims monitor until COVID actually worked in Arrowwood's offices. Actually somebody representing the state of Delaware. And one of the responsibilities of the claims monitor was to monitor the reserves and to make sure that the reserves were adequate and to ask the questions. Literally, the claims monitor would walk down the hall and could talk to clerks and could ask them questions about the decisions that were being made. Since COVID, we're doing that remotely. It's still once a week, Zoom calls, Zoom meetings. This is a very active monitoring process. So the question is, what are we doing here in the state of North Carolina in an unfair and deceptive trade practice claim where the Delaware insurer and the claim essentially is that the reserves aren't big enough and therefore they shouldn't be paying salaries? Well, those salaries, the compensation fees, were expressly approved by the insurance commissioner. So my question, and I think we take as true the, the reserves that, that were in the billions and now I think, I don't know the numbers, but 50 million or whatever the reserves are now, if we, if we take as true that, that, that there's been a major decline, um, is it, is it a, 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 I guess, an action that the claims monitoring isn't working because there's been a lot of money that's, that's gone out the window, and so there should be some sort of right of action separate and apart from that monitoring. And, and your, your Honor, um, understanding that these are allegations and, um, you know. Yeah, they're all, we're just taking them as true, and I'm not, I'm not making any. We're at the pleading any, stage, so yeah. we're not. Not, not necessarily agreeing up here, for right. example, as the statements made about the amount of the reserves mm -hmm. or the progression or the toad being heated up in the water or anything like that. Um, but if there is a concern by the policyholder, the remedy is to go to the insurance commissioner and to file a complaint with the insurance commissioner and to seek relief from the insurance commissioner. But isn't that, isn't that sort of circular? Is that the remedies with the insurance commissioner, the insurance commissioner is supposedly monitoring this, but that's not working. So their remedy is to go back to the insurance commissioner, right? Well, then your remedy is to go to court. If the insurance commissioner is not protecting, you go to court. And here you go to court in Delaware, because this is a Delaware domiciled um, um, insurance company. So nobody is saying there is no private remedy. Uh, we are saying that the uh, insurance commissioner has primary jurisdiction first. And if the insurance commissioner is not diligently exercising that jurisdiction, which they could never show, but assuming for purposes of the pleading state that we're at right now, then you would go to, you would go to the court in Delaware, you would go to the Chancery Court. Are and there any set of facts where a policyholder could come to a court in North Carolina under the Unfair and Deceptive Trade Practices Act and say, I was sold, maybe it was 50 years ago, but I was sold a, uh, an insurance policy and I was told that the company would have and keep the reserves in order to pay any claims out that, that came out of this policy. And some years later, because of some deceptive or fraudulent act, they no longer have that reserve. Is there any set of facts under which that representation to a customer, buy my product, will have the reserves to pay you? Like, it seems to me there must be some set of facts where that is uh, an actionable claim. Yeah, I, I think you would need uh, three things at least, um, uh, Judge Riggs, uh, to, to, have, to have such a claim. Uh, first, you would actually have to have a representation made to the consumer that induced the transaction at issue, that induced the purchase of the policy. No allegation of such a representation here, nor could there be. 
uh, given that these policies were sold 50 years ago in some instances, no sooner than 25 years ago in others. Um, secondly, you would have to have a direct injury arising from that. Thirdly, you'd have to have proximate causation to that injury. None of those elements are here. If you, you, you have, for example, um, uh, seen some um, unfair and deceptive trade act action cases brought against insurance companies, uh, the Gaydon case in New York, for example, these cases involve um, representations that were made that induced a policyholder to buy a policy and they weren't getting what they bargained for. Now, if the bargain was we're going to have adequate reserves and then the policyholder turns around and discovers three, five years later that there are no reserves, that they're not being managed, whatever it may be, um, then there could be a claim. But that's not what we have here. And we also don't have, because, because remember, this isn't an action, oddly enough, brought against Arrowwood Insurance Company. That action should be brought against Arrowwood. Here we have an action brought against directors and officers who are covered under the corporate immunity doctrine, who are acting unquestionably within the scope of their employment to recover from them what are essentially the ordinary operating costs of the, these businesses. Not because, not because any representations were made to anybody, misrepresentations about such statements. They rely on the representations made about such payments in, 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 and they were reported every year in the financial statements. They rely on them in their complaint. But what we have here is an action not brought against Arrowwood, but brought against the officers and directors because theoretically they shouldn't have been paying the pensions. They shouldn't have been, you know, uh, paying management fees to have, uh, you got to invest the capital. That's how you build your reserve. Um, it, it just doesn't come close to fitting within any of the conduct that's contemplated by the Unfair and Deceptive Trade Practices Act statutes. Judge Collins, have I adequately addressed your concerns about, about the remedies that would be available to a private policyholder? Yes. Thank you. I want to touch base on a couple of other issues that I think are um, are uh, pretty dispositive here, and one is simply the lack of standing. Um, we, you know, we have a 12B1 issue here. There is no standing under either the North Carolina statute or the New York statute unless you complete, quote, actual injury. It's an injury-based statute. Bumpers from the North Carolina um, court says that. Stutman from the New York Court of Appeals says that. And it is the diocese that has taken the position and is stopped from contesting that the claims that they are pursuing against Arrowwood are unduly speculative and are unduly hypothetical. They say it's too speculative for the indemnity case in New York to even proceed. Um, they have moved to dismiss on that basis. In a hearing in federal court, their counsel said the CVA claims they're still in their infancy. Of course, this quote, of course, the scope of defendant's liability in these cases is still undetermined and entirely speculative. Quote, or while it remained completely speculative as to whether or not defendants ultimately will face liability in any of these particular suits. There are substantial, as you can imagine, defenses to coverage here. What is alleged in these underlying pedophile claims is that our adversary was running an enterprise that turned a blind eye to what was going on, that enabled priests uh, to, and others in the church hierarchy to take advantage of these youths, that moved them around to hide it, and that there was widespread knowledge. Um, these are all bars to coverage. There are allegations of a conspiracy to do this. Those are bars to coverage. It is a very open question whether any of these cases will ever result in coverage that Arrowwood must pay. And as we've cited in the breach, brief and as the, the, uh, the court found below, uh, the lack of a direct injury is simply fatal uh, to the diocese claims to have standing under the North Carolina or, or, or New York acts. And uh, Noble, a very important case, Noble v. Hooters, 
of Greenville, 2009, North State Autobahn in New York, 2012, both go to this point. It's not enough to say that if the diocese prevails in the Brooklyn coverage action, and if it is determined that Arrowwood must indemnify the diocese losses in most of the lawsuits or enough to get over whatever the reserve deficiency they may claim is, and if the diocese in fact loses all or most of those lawsuits, then Arrowwood might not have sufficient funds. That's not proximate causation for purpose of the statute. I would also note that there is no dispute that all of the amounts that have been asked for in defense are being paid, and that is also contrary to what we're hearing that somehow this company is being, quote, looted. I want to speak just briefly. We heard from um, my colleague about, about not paying the pensions. Well, if you don't pay your pensions, you're violating federal law. And if you don't pay your pensions, the PBGC will shut down the company, which won't do anyone any good. Um, so I, I didn't quite follow that line of argument. Are there other expenses that they're claiming that have been paid that perhaps were, um, shouldn't have been paid or were paid um, too much? A absolutely not. And, and Your Honor, you know, what's striking here is, for example, uh, they, they, they challenge the compensation plans, right? Um, those were approved by the department, specifically approved by the department, including in the Denny decision, based upon comparable industry compensation packages. That's something the claims monitor monitors. That's something Delaware would monitor in any event for any runoff company. Where we have allegations that we shouldn't have paid investment management fees. And um, those investment management fees are simply payments, completely industry standard, that the Delaware Department expressly monitors. They are mainly made to a company named AIMCO. AIMCO is a, um, an affiliate of Arrowwood. The, the um, payments are industry standard, but the Delaware Department is monitoring those specifically, and that's in the record of pages 655 to 56, 731 to 732. Can you explain to me when a period of runoff ends? Well, it ends essentially when all of the claims that could possibly be brought have been exhausted. So the ideal, in, a, in an ideal runoff, you establish sufficient reserves and the department works, the department monitors it and works with the company. You make sure there's enough reserves and you try to run the company until all claims are eventually paid. So my question is, is there a point in time where you, where the, the policyholders must stop submitting claims such that there is a definite end to when the period of runoff is or no? Uh, there, there often is not a definite runoff, Judge Collins, because it depends on the terms of the policies. Okay. How long do the policies continue? A company going into runoff doesn't um, alter the terms of the original insurance policy. So you've got two scenarios in runoff. One is you end up expending all the resources, you end up in a liquidation, or you end up with a company that just keeps paying until the claims gradually teeter out. And obviously, as the uh, potential future uh, claims become a smaller amount, then it, you can run your company with, with less funds. And the only income you have is your investment income when you're in runoff? That's, that's largely what's driving it. So when this company was, um, was, the transaction occurred in 2007, a lot of attention was given to making sure that there were going to be adequate reserves for everything that could possibly come in under the policies. Of course, nobody anticipated that in 2019 or 2020, New York would, you know, waive its statute of limitations on, on the pedophile uh, cases. So that has introduced um, an additional element of, of uncertainty that has to be accounted for and that the Delaware Department, I can assure you, is most assiduously monitoring um, in very real time. The workers' comp claims were always viewed as what would be, you know, potentially the biggest um, uh, long-term uh, demand on reserves and those are being handled ahead of where they were expected. Mm. Thank you. If, um, you and I talked a few minutes ago about what it would take to actually bring a claim that would survive a motion to dismiss, bring a claim under the Unfair and Deceptive Trade Practices Act. Assume- Judge Riggs, can, can I interrupt real quick? Yeah. I had, I'm just gonna, I had surgery two weeks ago. I gotta run real quick. I'll be back in three minutes. I'm okay, I've just gotta run. Can you pause the timer? Just for three minutes. Just give me three minutes, I'll be right back. We'll just, we'll be in recess for three minutes. Thank you. Thank you.
be seated. So I was about to ask a question about the, um, the hypothetical we talked about, about if there were a, a valid claim or at least a claim to survive a motion to dismiss. If we were to agree with you here today that uh, either there's a problem with the representation, the direct injury, or the proximate injury, assume with me that this case gets dismissed, it turns out in five, ten years that um, the in coverage is found, the, the insurance company has to pay, and all of the, the actions result in huge damages that the insurance company has to indemnify, and the reserves are too inadequate. What do we do then about the statute of limitations? Well, the, the statute of limitations will told but not, not inappropriately so, Your Honor, because um, the unfair and deceptive trade practices that are alleged here are, are not practices that fall within the scope of the statute. As the, um, as the, as the court last year, Noble versus Foxmore said, um, North Carolina Supreme Court, um, to have acts that are inter-affecting commerce, they must be interactions between businesses or interactions between businesses and consumers. And that comes straight out of the statement of legislative purpose as quoted in the back case by the Supreme Court. But it doesn't mean, again, that, um, that you know, there's, there's no relief if there's some problem coming down the pike, that there's no relief for the diocese here. Uh, the diocese has that relief if it wants it, but it has it in Delaware, and it has it with the insurance commissioner and it has it, if need be, in an action involving the insurance commissioner, and all of that could have been done, frankly, when they filed the complaint here. Um, what is going on? The reason we have this suit is because they are trying to force a very large payment in the New York case for coverage that isn't proved and will probably never be proved. So they brought an action here to try to heavy the officers and directors, to try to find some statutory hook to point a gun at the officers and directors and say, you're gonna have liability because you did what? You, you paid pensions that were approved by the state of Delaware and required by federal law because you paid standard management fees that were reviewed by the state of Delaware. And remember, it's not just Delaware here. It's Price Waterhouse Coopers auditing every year, 
audited financials, audited reports, audits on the reserves, it's statutory reporting. So I don't think, first, Your Honor, I don't think we're going to be facing anything um, 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 such as, as your, your hypothetical presents. But if we were, if we were to assume the truth of pleadings here and that somehow the reserving and, and, and the, the reserve assumptions are, are wrong and are false, well, the remedy there is, is to take that up with the regulator, the regulator that, that's been empowered by the legislature of Delaware to protect the public and protect the policyholders and to go to the courts if you think the regulator's not doing that. And by the way, there's no reason to think the regulator isn't doing that. I've never seen that, certainly not in my experience, an insurance company more closely monitored than Arrowwood, where you actually have a department person on site from 2007 until COVID, and now they're by Zoom. I mean, that's that's quite unusual, um, even for a runoff company. So that's that's a very close close monitoring. I wanted to just touch base briefly in the last couple minutes allotted on a couple other points uh, that I think are, are fairly important. I don't want to lose here. One is we don't have anything but group pleading alleged. Um, so we don't have allegations against the individuals that actually could state a claim. Uh, group pleading is, is not alleged under the Unfair Trade Practices Act. Signing um, financial statements, um, which is basically all that's alleged, is not an act in or affecting commerce. Um, you don't get there. They've tried to get around that by pleading a conspiracy. That claim is barred by the intercorporate immunity doctrine. They've tried to get around it by saying these officers and directors were working outside, we're acting outside the scope of, of their employment. That's, that's not true. The two cases that are cited are completely inapposite. One involved a lawyer uh, and was found that, um, you know, EOC attorney was acting within the scope of his employment. The other involved a bicycle messenger who started an argument with a cab driver and it led to, to an accident. Uh, they just have nothing to do with this case. Um, also, I think very importantly, uh, the trial court found that the diocese claims are time barred, at least in part. Uh, that seems very clear with four and three year statutes at issue. And um, under the continuing wrong doctrine, it's only the acts that occurred within the statutory um, uh, limitations period that are available. I'd like to come back uh, to a recent decision of the New York um, um, Appellate Court, uh, New York Court of Appeals. Um, in a case called uh, City of New York versus Smoke Sprites, where the plaintiff said, well, I'm not, I can't show a direct injury. The plaintiff actually in that case was the City of New York. They wanted to sue on behalf of consumers. They said, we don't have a direct injury, but we're protecting the public interest. And what the, the Court of Appeals said was if a plaintiff could avoid the derivative injury bar by merely alleging that its suit would somehow benefit the public, then the very tidal wave of litigation, of consumer unfair and deceptive trade practice act litigation that we've guarded against since their decision in the case called Oswego, cited in the papers, uh, would loom ominously on the horizon. And that really is what we're looking at here. If this goes forward, Judge Dillon, it's exactly your example. Judge Trosh used the example of an auto insurer, anyone who has a concern, anyone who thinks, uh, any policyholder who thinks, oh, they're not doing something right in the reserving, oh, you know, their reinsurance numbers don't match Gen Re's reinsurance numbers, now they misunderstand it, but okay, so that must be fraud, then we get this very strong, anyone could be coming forward. There's nothing special about the diocese here. They're not protecting the public, they're protecting themselves. That this, is, this isn't about any of that. It's the insurance commissioner's job to protect the public. There would be a tidal wave. There would be a deluge. Are you aware of any of case where policyholders were allowed, and I'll ask you the same question. Are you aware of any case where policyholders were allowed to sue their insurance companies for being under-reserved or, or? So, uh, Judge Dillon, I'm not aware of any cases that would allow such a claim to be brought under the Unfair and Deceptive Trade Practices Act. Or for breach of contract any, or anything? I mean, any state. I haven't seen it under breach of contract. I, I have seen one under DUFTA, under the Delaware Uniform uh, Fraudulent Transfer Act um, statute where the, uh, a claim was brought. Uh, we, there 
was a very close question in that case about whether there was standing. Um, but the setting of reserves is really something that is given to the, the state insurance commissioners um, to manage. But this wouldn't be a fraud. This, they haven't alleged a fraudulent transfer that they, they fraudulently transferred money from the policy reserves to to go to Las Vegas or whatever. They haven't made that. That wouldn't be enough. No, a fraudulent transfer has to be um, a, a transfer that was actually intended to remove assets from the um, uh, from the the uh, ability uh, to uh, obtain them of a debtor, and you have to do it intentionally, and it has to be something um, that was done to intentionally re remove. In this case, the allegation would be surplus monies um, to pay pensions, for example. The, 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 the trick there is that you couldn't here have had a fraudulent transfer in, for example, the Uniform Fraudulent Transfer Act sense because nobody knew that these claims were going to be brought back to life um, in 2020 by the New York State Legislature. I'll give you one minute to wrap up since you answered my question. Yes. Um, just to wrap, Your Honor, I think what we've got here, uh, Your Honors, uh, my apologies, I think what we have here is a case where there's no standing to assert up to claims, where there's no pleading of coverage, there can be no claim without a pleading or finding of coverage, and this case has to be dismissed right there on, on the standing issue alone. Basic principles of standing, basic principles of comedy, um, and the basic principles of the Unfair Trade Practices Act cases um, preclude the court, uh, preclude the courts of North Carolina from re-examining the decisions and the careful monitoring under their expertise of the Delaware Insurance Commissioner. And that, um, we would submit, Your Honor, um, is uh, more than ample grounds for affirming a very well-reasoned decision of the trial court below. Thank you for your argument. You have 10 minutes. Thank you, Your Honor. What we just heard was an argument on a motion for summary judgment, not a 12B6. Now, I'm in a very difficult position, so either I stick with the record or I do the same thing. So, you know, I'm kind of between a rock and a hard spot here. So, let's talk about a few things. Why didn't they go to Delaware? Well, other than filing writ, you don't want to know how many times we've gone to Delaware, and all we've heard is crickets. Five times. Commissioner Trinidad Navarro, Attorney General's Office, nothing. They say insolvency is discretionary. Insolvency is math. It's addition and subtraction. Either you have what you need or you don't. It's math. Whether someone gets actually placed into liquidation, perhaps that's discretionary, perhaps not. But whether a company is insolvent is math. The 2022 annual statement, which I have right here, which as far as I'm concerned, the court can take judicial notice of, they're in a mandatory control level at this point. They are insolvent. And thin their notes to the financial on page 14.1. I listened to this about Delaware having monitors and all this. What makes anyone in this courtroom, except maybe the, the people here from, from Arrowpoint, believe that the Delaware Department was told the truth by these folks. That's why there's discovery. And that's what should have happened here. The pause button should have been perhaps pressed on the motion in its entirety by Judge Trosh and say, go take some discovery and then come back to me in a few months. I find it upsetting when I hear about, about things from what's happening in the coverage case or what's happening with these other actions with respect to New York. Because in our complaint, in paragraph 157, we took an excerpt from Schedule T of the annual statements. It's not conjecture. It's fact. Since the Child's Victim Act was enacted in the state of New York, the incurred number that Arrowwood had up for losses in the state of New York went down, not up. They put no reserves up, which we allege in that paragraph, but the numbers from their annual statements demonstrate that. Factually, and they can't contest it because that's just math again. In terms of deception, I said this earlier, and perhaps not as well as, as I should have, but certain things aren't clear when taken in a snapshot at any given point in time, but become clear 
after a period of years. And we allege this when we say in paragraph 135 about our CFO here and Mr. Tai who signed the annual statements under penalty of perjury. That's just very clearly, and you have to accept these allegations as true, $413 million in fake and fraudulent IBNR reductions. And it's, you look at the graphics, I know they're confusing. To me, it's simple. I, I live and breathe this every day. To everyone else, I understand it's Greek. But it's, it's clear what happened here, but it's only clear when you look at it after passage of time, and that's what makes it challenging. Insurance accounting is difficult. I know it because I've done this my whole life. But it, to others, it's not that simple. They knew it. They knew exactly what they were doing. Let me ask you the same question. Are sure. you aware of any case where policyholders are allowed, were allowed to maintain an action against an insurance company for not being properly reserved or for spending money that they, in a way they shouldn't have been allowed to spend? rather than going to the Department of Insurance. Is there any case in the country where that took place? Are you aware of any? Because you said you live and breathe it and all that, so, and I don't, uh -huh. I'm just kind of curious. What I can answer is this, Your Honor. And we get into this a little bit in the complaint. In the industry, there's reinsurance, where reinsurance take part of the business owner. Yeah. Court knows this now, I understand. You need an indemnity case in New York. The reinsurers said, you folks finagled us. You weren't, you were, you were operating a fraud here. You weren't putting up the proper reserves. The mission case in California, I was lead counsel on that back in the 80s. Pacific reinsurance was a subsidiary of mission. They were, they were fudging the reserves and reinsurers took them on and ultimately prevailed. So, in the, in the reinsurance community, yes, there have been a lot of cases where reinsurers with a vested interest have been, gone after them. And we had a DNO case, case against, uh, you know, Lou Marioni, uh, Dick DeRosa, you know, the officers and directors of, of Mission with respect to what they did. I, was, I litigated that case for 10 years. Uh, in New York, the directors and officers of Union Indemnity were gone after. Can I ask uh, you in those cases sorry, with, the, with the reinsurance? These are reinsurance? Well, so, well, go ahead. Um, there, were, there were definitely reinsurance disputes. Um, I don't remember right now in the mission case where the policyholders also went after them. Uh, My specific question is, in those cases, were the reinsurers being asked to pay something and then oh, they came bet. back? Okay, so it wasn't, it wasn't a speculative injury, but in fact it was an injury that they were being asked to pay, and they turned around and said, we're not going to because you fudged your numbers. That's accurate, Your Honor, but my, my point to you is that, from a holistic perspective, an insurance company has money coming in and money coming out. And even for reinsurers, there are reinsurance premiums so it, it's not a one-way street. In, in terms of um, reinsurers making claims for amounts that they would do, that was present in, in the Mission case. It was present in the Transit Casualty case in Missouri. And so we've had many situations where reinsurers have been looking for money coming back to them as well, where the, the uh, <laughs> in, in the Mission case, somewhat similar situation to what happened here. The reserves were uh, mismanaged and money went out the door to executives who then retired to Palm, Palm Springs and uh, had a nice retirement. And policyholders and the guarantee funds in the various states were left holding the bag. Would, would both sides please do us the favor of submitting a memorandum of additional authority for cases that you all have argued that are not in your briefs so that we have those sites? Sure. That would be helpful. Happy to, Your Honor. Thanks. Thank you. And just a few, in the, in the minute I have left, just a few other things very quickly. PwC, we raised PwC in our complaint. Look to the allegations of what we have said with respect to their claim of safe harbor with respect to PwC. We don't think it actually happens. With respect to 
the issue of consumer-oriented transaction. I frankly can't imagine anything more consumer-oriented than how you are presenting your solvency to all the states and the public. Nothing can be more consumer-oriented. And the fact that behind the scenes you're hiding what you're doing that is going to have a direct deleterious effect on those consumers, you can't say that's not actionable because we, because we hit it. And um, um, so as far as you know, we're concerned, clearly it was deceptive, clearly it was unfair to the consumers, and there couldn't be anything more consumer-oriented than the solvency, which is where we started and where I'm going to end, the solvency. You have about one minute. If you, I'm done. Unless you're done. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Ronald. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for your arguments. We will take it under advisement, and we will adjourn court.